morning. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. That will be our primary text for this morning. And when you find that, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And Lord, we just come before you this morning and recognize you as a holy and majestic God and we as a people who are covered in sin and separated from you apart from the work of Christ. And God, I pray that as we look at your word this morning that you would make the reality of the impossible salvation that you've given to us more true, more meaningful, and more powerful in our lives. God, that we would be changed and transformed as a result of it. We pray this in your name. Amen. According to the Barna Group, 59% of college-age, self-professing Christians say that they believe that it is acceptable for a couple to live together before getting married. The data in this study goes on and on, showing that Christians from all demographics are little different than the rest of the world when it comes to lifestyles and views on morality. The study shows that Christians look a lot like the world regarding issues like divorce, fornication, movies, TV, etc. There's not much difference based on these surveys. The director of the research, David Kinneman, pointed out, the research shows that people's moral profile is more likely to resemble that of their peer group than it is to take shape around the tenets of a person's faith. Well, Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God. It's not the power of God just to save us to heaven or to save us from hell, but it's the power of God to save us from sin, to save us from slavery to sin. The gospel pulls us away from sin. But there's no doubt that there are false gospels. There are gospels that don't save and many versions of false gospels dwell right within so-called Christianity, within what is called the church. And the results are evident in these types of surveys. There is no power in a false gospel. That's why Satan's attention is consumed with the proliferation of the false gospel. And that's why God warns so strongly about those who would teach a false gospel. If you look quickly over in Galatians chapter 1, Starting in verse 6, Paul says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed, let him be anathema. It is the strongest possible condemnation that Paul could say about anyone. If anyone preaches another gospel, let him be anathema. And in case you didn't get it the first time, he repeats himself in verse 9. He says, As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you have received, let him be accursed. 
Satan's primary work is within religion and within the so-called church. He's the father of lies, and he promotes false gospels, perverting the gospel from inside the church. A false sense of salvation is his biggest weapon. We see in Matthew chapter 7, a passage that Pastor Mike will be getting to shortly, starting in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These are people who are religious. They were prophesying in the name of Jesus, and they were casting out demons. They were performing miracles in the name of Jesus, and Jesus says, I never knew you. A false sense of salvation based on a false gospel. There are even people who might believe the right facts, the right information, and still not be saved. John chapter 2, starting in uh, verse 23, says, Now when he was in Jerusalem in the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. People believing the right things, but Jesus wasn't entrusting himself to them. They weren't saved. It's not just about believing things about God. In fact, it's not about praying a prayer or even asking Jesus into your heart. It's about the power of the gospel invading your life. There is no power outside of the true gospel, but there's no lack of power within the true gospel. Look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 paints this picture very clearly verse 18 for the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness but to those who are being saved it is the power of God if you're a believer that should just knock you over the gospel to those who are perishing is foolishness but if you're being saved it's the very power of God and that's a lot of power the power of God is in the gospel And God is serious about the truth of the gospel because the power of the gospel is only unleashed when when God is given all of the glory. Here in 1 Corinthians 1, skip down to verse 25. "Because Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are. Why? That no man should boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The gospel means that we only boast in the Lord. The gospel is God-centered. It's not about us. It's about Him. In fact, the gospel is not even about what we get from God. It's not about good feelings, love, joy, forgiveness, although all those can be parts of what results from the gospel. But the gospel is not about what we get from God. Rather, the gospel is this. The gospel is that we get God. And if that doesn't mean anything to you, then maybe you don't understand the gospel because the gospel means that we get God, that God is greater than everything else, and that we get God. 
The gospel causes us to understand that getting God himself is way better than anything else that we could have in the universe. Some Christians say the gospel is about how you get to heaven or about God eliminating your worry and your stress or about God caring for your finances or your health. Maybe God just wants to hang out with you. There may be truth in a lot of these things. They may be results of the gospel, but this is not the whole gospel. If we come to God out of a desire for any of these things, then we are responding to a false gospel. Some people say the gospel is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, that may be true, but that's not the whole gospel. We need to get the gospel right. We need to understand it. We need to relish it. We need to love it. It's the very power of God, and that needs to be central in our lives. Understanding the gospel is the foundation for how we can love God. It's the foundation for how we can know him. Apart from a true understanding of the gospel, we can't do a single worthwhile thing in this life. Even as Christians, we must come daily face-to-face with the reality of the gospel and unleash that power in our lives in order to live the life that God has called us to live. God is serious about us getting the gospel right. And so this morning, we're going to look at the imperatives of the gospel. What are the non-negotiables? What should we believe? What should we evangelize? What is the good news? Why is it good news? How do we unleash the power of God, both for the very first time in your life and then every day thereafter? And we're going to look here at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 as a framework for addressing these questions. What is the gospel? We're going to look at four essential elements of the gospel. The first one is we need peace. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have to understand the centrality of peace in the gospel. 1 Corinthians 14, 33 says that God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Hebrews 13 refers to a God of peace. 2 Thessalonians 3.16 says Jesus is a Lord of peace. John 14.27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Ephesians 2, Paul says he is our peace. And later in Ephesians, Paul says, refers to the gospel of peace. See, peace only comes from God. Anything manufactured by man is going to be temporary, temporary peace. But in Romans 5.1, it talks about that we have peace. We have peace on a continuous, permanent basis. We have peace with God. This peace is not objective. or I'm sorry, this peace is objective. It's not subjective. It's not based on feelings or how you feel towards God on a day-to-day basis. It doesn't change on a day-to-day basis. It's an objective reality based on what really is. It's based on truth. But to really understand this peace, the glorious reality of what we can have We have to have a right view of God and a right view of ourselves. Prior to coming to Christ, we're at war with God. We're the avowed enemy of God. We don't like to think about that very much. This doesn't necessarily mean that you were consciously at war with God. You may not even be thinking about God if you're not in Christ or before you were a Christian. You may not even be thinking about, hey, I'm at war with God. But guess what? God was consciously at war with you. You may not have considered God your enemy, but he considered you his enemy. Listen to these verses. 2 Kings twenty-two thirteen. Great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us. Isaiah 66, 15. The Lord will come with fire. Chariots like a whirlwind will render his anger with fury and rebuke with flames of fire. Jeremiah 21, 5. I will myself hide against you with an outstretched hand, a strong arm, even in anger and fury and great wrath. 
What is God so angry about? Joshua 23, 16 tells us he's angry about sin. When you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods and bowed down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he has given you. Well, the scary verse in uh, Psalm 5, 5 says that God hates all who do wrong. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 speaks of God's future wrath and says, talks about when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And then to wrap this up, we come to maybe the most graphic passage about God's wrath in the whole Bible. Revelation chapter 19 describes Christ in his second coming. Second half of that verse says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. I just want to point out four quick things about this passage to just put it in its context. We're going to work backwards on the verse refers to God the Almighty. We're not just dealing with the President of the United States here. We're not dealing with just some person with a lot of power. We're dealing with Almighty God. We're dealing with Almighty means all-powerful. All power is in Him. If you want to think of it in these terms, um, we're talking about all atomic power, all nuclear power, all electromagnetic power, all gravitational power, any kind of power you can think of, and then some is all in the hands of God. This is Almighty, all-powerful God. Secondly, It says that this almighty God will pour out his wrath. It's talking about the wrath of the God Almighty. He's not only a God of love, but he's a God of holiness and justice and wrath. And thirdly, it's not just wrath, but it says the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. We're not just talking about your day-to-day wrath. We're talking about the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And then it says, fourthly, it says that Jesus is treading the winepress of this fury. This means that those who, he's talking about those who have rebelled and didn't repent, that they're like grapes under the feet of the fury of Christ. And they're crushed until their blood runs like wine from the press. This is a graphic picture of the wrath of God. This is how God feels about sin, about those who sin. Ultimately, he will bring punishment for those in sin and for most of the world, The only reason that hasn't happened yet is because of God's grace. Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, spoke about the condition of a lost sinner apart from Christ. And he says, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is a purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. There is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is nothing else to be given as a reason why you don't this very moment drop into hell. We're all guilty in sin. And our sin doesn't just separate us from God. Our sin brings war between us and God. We need to understand that. That God's righteousness requires that he punish sin completely. Sin is falling short of the glory of God. And when we 
fall short of the glory of God. We sin, we trample on that glory and God to uphold his glory, to uphold the very essence of who he is, he must punish that sin. We've committed an infinite offense against God and it requires an infinite punishment. And that's what's on us because of our sin. You say, hey, what happened to this God of peace? What about God is love? Where is that? Romans 5.1 says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. There is a peace to be had. And I think we understand this more clearly. If you just look over at Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. There's the bad news. Verse 4 turns, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. By the way, this is the only place in the Bible Paul uses that phrase, great love. What does he do with this great love? Even while we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. See, God's love, apart from a clear understanding of his wrath, diminishes his love. If we cling to his love without an appreciation for his wrath, we diminish God, we diminish his sacrifice, we diminish his love. God's love without an appreciation for his righteous wrath is a false gospel. We must tremble in appreciation of the fury of God's wrath before we can truly bask in the goodness of his love. Romans 5.1 is not talking about peace with the world. It's not talking about between neighbors or countries. It's not talking about a peace treaty. It's the heart of the gospel. The good news is this. The good news is that you can stand and you can say, God is no longer at war with me. That's the gospel. God is no longer looking to pour out his wrath on you. God is no longer angry at you. That's the good news. If we don't understand how angry God should be at us, there's no good news. The good news is based on understanding how angry God should be on us, how much he should pour out on his wrath on us, and yet, out of his great love, he makes us alive together in Christ. That's the good news. This word peace is derived from the Hebrew word shalom. It, it, it implies a wellness of relationship. We're not talking about a ceasefire. We're talking about um, true abiding peace. Not an absence of conflict, but permanent, lasting, never-ending peace with God. A permanent state. Now what does this mean for us just on a daily basis? Think about this. If you're, you're driving down the road. You're going down, down a road that's a 40 mile an hour speed limit. You're lost in thought. You're thinking. You're listening to music. Whatever it is, you're a little distracted and not really watching your speed, and all of a sudden, out of the corner of your eye, you see there's a motorcycle policeman on the corner with his radar gun pointed right at you. You look down at your speedometer, you go on 55 and a 40. And what happens? Your heart starts beating fast, you start sweating, you're like, oh, I'm getting a ticket. And you go, you go on by, and you look in your rearview mirror, and he doesn't move. And you watch a little bit longer, and he's not coming out after you. Now, I'm sure I'm not the only one in this room that's had that experience. <laughs> and what happens? You have this sense of relief. It just washes over you and your heart's still beating fast and you're still maybe sweating a little bit. You're like, oh, I got away with one. I was guilty. I know I was guilty. I should have got a ticket, but I didn't. I don't know why, but I didn't. We are washed with a sense of relief. When you ever think of the gospel, do you ever feel relief? We should. We are guilty, but we're not let off the hook. God puts his punishment on another. When we consider the cross, 
when we have a correct view of the atonement, we should have a wonderful sense of relief all the time. When we think of the gospel, we should feel relief. Consider, consider when you first arrive to heaven. If you're, if you're a believer and you, 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 you wake up one morning and boom, you're in heaven. And uh, imagine that scene. You're going to be lost in the, in the wonder and the majesty and the spectacular surrounding of heaven and, and the awesomeness of, of God. And you might be weeping for joy and overwhelmed by the goodness and the love of God. Now hold that picture in your mind for just a minute. I read a story about a, a guy who was driving down the freeway. He was going about 80, 85 miles an hour uh, late at night. And uh, he looked down to adjust his radio or something. And um, when he looked up, a car had pulled in front of him. And he had to swerve at the last minute to avoid hitting that car. But in the process, he clipped another car. And one thing led to another. And the next thing you know, his car starts rolling down the freeway. It rolled one, two, three, five, six times down the freeway. Now fast forward, the same guy is standing on the side of the, the freeway somehow miraculously able to walk away from that car with just some bumps and bruises. And he's standing on the side of the freeway and he looks out at his mangled car in the middle of the freeway and he describes that he just started shaking and he couldn't stop shaking. You know, he couldn't stop thinking about what might have been. He couldn't stop thinking about what might have happened in that situation and I think heaven's going to be a little bit like that when we first get to heaven, at least initially. I think we're going to be shaking. We're going to be basking in the wonder and the joy and the awesomeness of who God is, but I think there's going to be just a sense of us and we're going to be shaking because we're going to think, if not for the grace of God, what might have been. That we should have been in hell, if not for the grace of God. That we should have been in eternal torment and, in, and, and enduring the wrath of God forever and ever and ever, if not for the grace of God. And I think that we're going to shake uncontrollably as we consider what might have been. We need to feel relief when we think of the gospel. Relief based on this peace that we can have with God. But this peace is only true for those who are saved by the true gospel. We must recognize the need for peace. If there's no peace, there's no gospel. So we need to ask, how do we get that peace? So the second point is, we need righteousness. We need righteousness. Job in Job 9.2 asked, how can a man be righteous before God? Job understood God is a holy, perfect God and I'm sinful and there's this great chasm between me and God and how can a man be righteous before God? I can't come into God's presence apart from being righteous. How can a man be righteous before God? Here in Romans, Paul spends chapters three and four working really hard to explain being justified by faith, how we can be justified, how we can be declared righteous by God, independent of our, our own actions. This term justification where in, in Romans 5.1, therefore having, having been justified by faith, it's, it's, it's that. It means God declares us righteous, independent of ourselves. God says, you're not righteous, but I'm declaring you to be righteous. It's the basis of peace that God no longer sees us in sin, and so there's no reason to pour out his wrath on us, but he declares us to be righteous. And this peace comes through justification, through being declared righteous. And justification comes through faith, it says, having been justified by faith. The peace can't come, or the justification can't come from ourselves. We can't make ourselves righteous. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves righteous before God. Look over at Luke chapter 16. We're going to look at three passages here in a row to further explain this. Luke chapter 16, 
verses 14 and 15. It says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. Jesus is saying, You are those who think that you can make yourselves righteous before God. You think that you can live a life that's going to be pleasing to God. And how does Jesus describe them? He says, But God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among, among men is detestable in the sight of God. You think you can make yourself righteous before God? That's detestable. There's nothing you can do to make yourself righteous before God. Look at Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 3. Romans chapter 4 explains this a little bit further. Verse 3 says, What does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It's another way of saying Abraham believed God, and God justified him. God declared him righteous because of Abraham's belief. Because Abraham had faith in God, God declared him righteous. Now notice, verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. If you go to work tomorrow, you work for the day, and ultimately you get a paycheck, that paycheck is not your boss doing you a favor. You've earned a paycheck. That's what's owed to you. And Paul is saying here, to the one who works, if you work for your salvation, you're going to get what's owed to you. You get what's due to you. And we just spent a lot of time talking about what God owes you because of your sin. Verse 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies, notice who he justifies, the ungodly. His faith is reckoned as righteousness. If you believe the one who justifies, if you put your faith in the one who justifies, he justifies not the godly, but he justifies the ungodly. He justifies us in spite of our sin. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness because of faith that we're saved. The Book of Mormon captures the idea that a lot of our world falls into erroneously. It says, it's by grace that we're saved after all that we can do. You know, the reality is it's by grace that we are saved in spite of all that we have done. Look at Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, starting in verse 9, Jesus tells a parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they viewed others with contempt. Jesus is telling a parable about those who think that they can be righteous enough to please God. Two men went up into the temple to pray, and one, one a Pharisee, the other a tax gatherer. And the Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, declared righteous, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. See, there's this idea again that it's not about us, it's about God. And we exalt ourselves, we diminish God's glory, and that doesn't lead to justification. What led to this uh, tax gatherer's justification is he threw himself at the feet of God and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, pleading for God's mercy, expressing total dependence on God. You see, justification is not a state that we move in and out of. It's independent of our works. No amount of confession or penance makes you more justified. No sin makes you less justified. It's completely independent of anything that we can do. We can't add anything to 
our works to justify us before God. We can't do anything to get peace before God. If we think that we can add anything to get peace with God, then we don't have peace with God. It only comes from complete dependence on the mercy of God. Number one, we need peace. Number two, we need righteousness. And where does that righteousness come from? Number three, we need Jesus. Back in Romans 5, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification is through Jesus Christ, through the cross, through the atonement. It's not a blind faith on an ambiguous God. It's a, it's a faith in Jesus specifically. Isaiah 53 says, As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Colossians 2 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And then maybe one of my most favorite phrases in the whole Bible by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The reason we can be justified, the reason we can have peace with God is because of faith in Jesus. God puts our sin on the cross. He sets aside the record of debt that stands against us with its legal demands for God's wrath. He puts it aside and he nails it to the cross. Romans, end of Romans 5 says we have peace with God Romans 5 1 peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and verse 2 through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand it's through Jesus that we obtain our introduction by faith into grace it's through Jesus this word introduction is access we have our access to God's grace through Jesus apart from Jesus there is no access to grace grace is God's unmerited favor Favor he puts on us that we don't deserve. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 speaks to this. This isn't just God holding out tickets to heaven, saying, somebody come take these tickets. Take, the, take, take a ticket and you can go to heaven. It's the power of God divinely grabbing hold of you in your, in your sin and bringing you back to spiritual life. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. It is faith grace, salvation, all rolled up in one. That is the gift that God gives to us. It continues the theme that no one should boast. It's all about God. It strips away everything from us, puts all the glory on him. We're saved by his mercy and grace. And that grace, we have access to it through Jesus. We need Jesus. We need the real Jesus. We need to see Jesus as God. First John 2, 22 and 23 speaks to this. And that if you don't get Jesus right, there's no gospel. There's no salvation. You need to know that Jesus is God. Wrong identification with Jesus diminishes the sacrifice on the cross. It diminishes the gospel. It robs God of the glory that's due to him. Seeing Jesus as God is essential and, and central to the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5 says that he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Jesus became our sin, and God poured out his wrath on Jesus in our place. God's anger, wrath, and justice were satisfied because it was poured out on the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Here we get to the real good news of the whole gospel. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no guilt for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he asks, 
How do you get into Christ Jesus? Or I'm, I ask, how do you get into Christ Jesus? This seems to be an important point. We're justified by faith, but we start wondering, where does that faith come from? Once we're in Christ Jesus, how do we, how do we know that we'll stay in there? How can we have this confidence, this peace won't be lost, that somehow we'll fall out of Christ Jesus? If there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, if there's no reason to be guilty for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, how do we get into Christ Jesus? And 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, By his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You're in Christ Jesus because God puts you in there. If God puts you in, he's not going to take you out. You can't lose your faith if God is the one that's given it to you. And so this is the basis of this permanent peace that we have. It's, it's by God's doing that we are in Christ Jesus. And it's, when we're in Christ, then we have no condemnation because our sin has been nailed to the cross. And so we are justified. We are righteous before God. And we're righteous before God. We can have peace with God. And we're not under the judgment of God's wrath. Let me illustrate the permanence of this peace that we have. In John chapter 19, Jesus is on the cross. And he says, I'm thirsty. And they, they give him some wine. And uh, shortly thereafter, it says that Jesus received the sour wine, and then he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. Now, what did Jesus mean when he said it's finished? He's talking about his life was finished, his work was finished, his suffering was finished. But there's something more. What all was finished when Jesus said it is finished? Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 speaks to this in verse 1 says, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have a consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bull and goats to take away sins. The Jews understood that sacrifices did not take away sins. They knew there was something insufficient about the sacrifices. It says in verse 2, otherwise they wouldn't have to go year after year. They have to continually come back and offer more and more sacrifices for the forgiveness of their sins and that those sacrifices weren't sufficient. It says that the law was a shadow of things to come, that there's something bigger, something better, something greater coming. And the sacrifices were reminding them, it says in verse 3, of their sins. And that reminder was a reminder of their sins which reminded them of their need for a Savior, of their need for the Messiah. This word here in verse 3 says, In those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. That word reminder is the Greek word anamnesis. It means a remembrance, a recollection. This is a reminder of our sins. <clears throat> An anamnesis of sins that we have. It only appears, this word anamnesis, in one other place in the Bible. That's in a familiar passage in 1 Corinthians 11, chapter, 20, uh, chapter 11, verse 23. 1 Corinthians 11 23 says, For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this as an anamnesis of me. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me, as an anamnesis of me. You see, the Jews in the Old Testament, they had an anamnesis of their sins. They needed to be reminded of their sins year after year and come back and year after year offer a sacrifice. But we now, looking back on Jesus, we have an anamnesis, not of our sins, but we have an anamnesis, a reminder of the Savior 
for our sins. The once for all completed work of Christ on the cross that saves us from our sins and removes us from being under the burden of condemnation and frees us to be able to live in the life that Christ has called us to live. The people of the Old Testament had an anomnesis that looked at their sins. We have a reminder that looks at the Savior for our sins. James White says this, the reason you can cling to justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by his word alone, and believe that God's wrath so justly deserved by every one of us finds no place in you is because of the perfection, the once for all perfection of that completed sacrifice on Calvary's tree. Before the throne of God above, he stands in the presence of the Father, his name upon us, our name upon his lips. He stands in our place. The work is completed. There is nothing to add. That is the gospel. We need peace, we need righteousness, we need Jesus. And all those things are true. Brings us to the fourth point. We need to bow. We need to make Jesus Lord. Romans 5.1 says that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord. He is Lord. And be, making him Lord starts with repentance. Back a couple of pages in Romans, Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, Or do you, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? God's greatest kindness, the apex of his kindness and his grace is at the cross. When we think of the cross, it must drive us to repentance. If it doesn't, it says that we're thinking lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. We need to ask ourselves that. Are we thinking lightness, thinking lightly? of his kindness, forbearance, and patience should bring us to repentance, a turning from our sin and a turning towards God. Romans 6.11 says that if we're in Christ, we should be dead to sin and alive to God. We should flee from sin and run to the cross because the cross is that much more precious and valuable and worthwhile to us than any sin that we could commit. And we see the value of the cross because it's at the cross that we're justified and saved from the wrath of God and at peace with God. And we cling to that cross because it is so valuable. And all of a sudden, sin is not attractive to us anymore. The bigger we see the cross, the less attractive we see sin. The smaller we see the cross, the more attractive sin is and we go to sin. Here's where we see the distinction between religion and the gospel. Religion is we obey so we can have peace with God. We can have favor with God. The gospel is we have impossible peace with God, not from our own doing, but by the work of Christ, and therefore we obey. We obey because we have peace with God. We don't obey to get peace with God. And notice what it says here in verse 2, Romans 5. End of verse 1, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. So we make Jesus Lord, we obey him, we repent of him, because we exult in hope of the glory of God. Jesus is the glory of God. We hope in Jesus, we trust in him because he's the one that establishes our peace. What's our response to that? We exult. I suggest that we see how God grants us peace when we were the objects of God's wrath. The only natural response to that is that we joyfully bow and obey him. Our exulting goes hand in hand as we see him as Lord of our lives. You know, times are tough right now. You know, there's a lot of people dealing with financial worries, serious health problems, emotional drama. But we can still exult in the hope that we have in Jesus. It makes everything else pale in comparison. Nothing else matters compared to the reality that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We should exult. 2 Corinthians 4 says, for momentary light affliction is producing 
for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. These momentary light afflictions we experience in life are nothing compared to what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. Paul speaks of being sorrowful yet always rejoicing. The reason he can say that is because he has the cross in view and we rejoice in the cross. It is the basis of, of our exaltation. We rejoice, we exult because of what Christ has done. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching about the cross and in response to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, he says this. He quotes from the Psalms and he says, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Peter is appealing to, to, uh, to, the, to the Gentiles here in this presentation of the gospel and he's pointing at the cross and he's saying, when you understand the cross, there is inexplicable, inexpressible joy based in understanding what the cross is about. The, cro- the gospel results in an unwavering joy even in the midst of pain and sorrow and this joy results in repentance and obedience to the Lord. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, he says, I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. That's heavy. Psalmist is saying, I was in a, I'm in a hurry to obey you, Lord. I'm in a hurry to obey. Are you in a hurry to obey the Lord? You know, if you're exulting in the cross, if the cross is that precious, that valuable, that magnificent in your life, you're going to be in a hurry to want to obey. And you're going to do it out of joy. Let me close with an illustration. In 1988, the Los Angeles Dodgers played the Oakland A's in the World Series. It was game one of the World Series, and the Dodgers were serious underdogs. And we come to the ninth inning of game one of the World Series, and the Dodgers are down by a run. The best relief pitcher in baseball is pitching for the A's. The Dodgers have a man on first base and two outs. And they call their hero from the whole year, Kurt Gibson, to pinch hit in that situation. Now at that time, Kurt Gibson didn't start the game because both of his knees were injured. He could barely walk. And Gibson comes hobbling to the plate, barely able to walk, and is somehow going to take his swings against the best relief pitcher in baseball. And quickly, he has two strikes on him. And so Gibson, looking at two strikes, one strike away from losing, starts fouling off pitch after pitch. And finally, on the ninth pitch of the at-bat, Gibson miraculously makes contact with that ball and sends it high and deep into the night, two-run home run, and the Dodgers won. Dodger Stadium was bedlam. The crowd was ecstatic. The Dodgers were jumping and going crazy all over the field. In the broadcast booth that night was Vin Scully. And Vin, in his wisdom, went over two minutes without saying a word. And the television audience just saw this crazy pandemonium at Dodger Stadium and Dodger players just celebrating the miraculous win that they had just experienced. Finally, after a two-plus-minute break, Vin Scully delivered one of the most memorable lines in sports broadcasting history. He said, In a year that has been so improbable, the impossible has happened. And that line just captured the jubilant disbelief of Dodger fans everywhere, I can assure you. If you're a Christian, if you're saved by the gospel, 
we should wake up every morning with the same excitement and perspective. The impossible has happened. We were at war with the living God. We were living in rebellion before God. We had no hope. We were doomed to eternal hell. And God, independent of us, he did the impossible. He granted us grace unmeasured. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and delivered us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Later in Romans 5, starting in verse 6, Paul says this. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The impossible has happened. And we exult in that hope and we make him Lord and we rejoice as we obey and follow him. God, thank you so much for the truth of the gospel. Thank you for the power that's unleashed in it. God, thank you for the reality of the love that you've extended to us even though we were in rebellion against you. God, I thank you that that love is real and transforming and life-changing. And God, I pray that as we come to understand the true gospel more and more each day, that we would be compelled to follow you joyfully, that we would be in a hurry to obey you, God, that we would love to do what you would command because we know that you have our best in mind and you've already accomplished the greatest accomplishment that there could be for us and that you have brought us from death to life. You have restored us to yourself. And God, I pray that that would be real for each one of us today and that we would follow you wholeheartedly. We pray this in your name.